The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Michelle Obama used her podcast this week to tell us all that she's suffering from a low level of depression over the state of the nation. Well, speaking only for myself, what I'm feeling is definitely not depression. What I am suffering from is gut-clenching anxiety. Anxiety about a raging COVID-19 epidemic that is literally sweeping across the country. Racial tensions that are reaching a crescendo. An economy in freefall. Chaos in the nation's capital. Governors overwhelmed and tested by the complete lack of federal leadership a foreign policy in disarray, a military exhausted and ill-equipped, so many verified stories of government corruption that we've become immune to shock or demands of, for justice for the perpetrators. A national election in just 86 days where the director of the National Intelligence Office tells us that Russia, China, and Iran are actively meddling in ways that we could see, can see, and those that are unseen. And a president lacking in empathy and with established, documented, authorian tendencies. A president who lies as regularly and easily as most citizens breathe. You ask, following that litany, what else could go wrong? You're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. My life's work has been about solving problems, not making them. And what keeps me up at night, literally, is not only what I see before us today and what confronted us yesterday, I'm more worried about what might happen tomorrow or the next day, or even over the next few months. Too many commentators with larger platforms than mine are acting as if, by some miracle, Joe Biden will win the November 3rd election. And on November 5th, just like in Brigadoon the movie, everything will come up roses and lollipops. Well, I've come to disabuse you of that notion. The problems I just recited, well, you know what? That recitation Every one of those is still going to exist on November 3rd, on November 4th, on November 5th, and until some undeterminate moment past November 5th. The president's appetite for continued power has demonstrated no bounds in recent months, as polls have shown him falling behind Joe Biden in more and more key battleground states as well as in the overall national preference polls, his reaction has been more and more strident and less and less engaged with reality. It's gotten so bad that even Fox News cut away from his August 6th White House briefing. On Saturday, 
yesterday, yes, yesterday, in an effort to circumvent Congress and make himself look more the emperor he wishes to be, he had his staff prepare a memorandum ordering the treasury to defer payment of federal payroll taxes, what we call FICA in your paycheck, for all workers who earn less than $100,000, the, they would be exempted from paying their FICA for the rest of the year. But it's a deferral, folks. It's not a, uh, it, it's not a forgiveness. If he's reelected, he said in his rally-like mode yesterday, those taxes would be waived. First, saying, if you vote for me, I'll give you roughly 1200 bucks in cash is a bribe. I think we've been here. He was impeached for that once already. Second, it ignores the fact that only Congress can raise, lower, defer, or alter taxes. Third, it guts the underpinnings of Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare who depend on FICA taxes to pay benefits. It's an act of desperation from a desperate man, as were the rest of his suggestions. While he called them executive orders in his talking points, they are in fact memorandums of suggestion. They have no force of law and no power. The president spent much of his time on Saturday in his little mini rally with his, his $350,000 a year individual members of his golf club, he spent most of the time railing about fraudulent votes and forged ballots. The president spent more of his time on, in his Saturday mini rally at his, at his Bedminster golf club with his $350,000 a year individual members cheering him on, railing about fraudulent votes and forged ballots than he did his can't-go-anywhere effort to claim that he is offering unemployment assistance to the 16 to 20 million Americans now out of work, largely due to the COVID crisis. How is he going to pay for his attempt at unemployment assistance? Well, you know, he cannot appropriate money, but he's figured he's going to take some money out of FEMA. You know, you know, FEMA is, are those guys who are expected to pick up the slack when there's a pandemic or a hurricane or a forest fire or a flood or an earthquake or all of the above at the very same time, which actually did happen this week. How'd you like that 5.1 shaker in North Carolina? Woke you up on a Sunday morning, didn't it? and demanding a 25% additional copay from the states in order to get any of that money that the president's not entitled to spend on unemployment assistance. And the states who are facing the need to actually cut first responders, people who drive ambulances, paramedics, police officers, teachers, 
garbage collectors because they can no longer with a reduced tax base as a result of COVID make their budgets balance. They don't have $100 a week per unemployed person to kick in in order to get money from the federal government. So in a nutshell, if you're following this, the president's $400 a week in unemployment insurance for 16 to 20 million people who really need help right this very moment, it's a gimmick. It's like a prop for a play. It's not a serious effort to help millions of folks who are in serious financial and emotional distress. Gimmicks, gimmicks when people's lives are at stake. And as to the safety of mail-in ballots, long a staple of GOP of Republican get out the vote campaigns. Well, in a nutshell, all states use mail-in balloting to a greater or lesser degree. Honestly, I can't remember when I last went to the polls to vote and I never miss an election. As the days dwindle down toward November 3rd, I expect the president's actions to become more out of the norm, more brazen, more potentially re-impeachable, I think I just invented a new word, and that's what makes me anxious every single day. You just can't predict what's going to happen next. Politico is reporting that the president's lawyers are exploring whether and how he could use an executive order to stop the post office from delivering mail-in mail ballots to county election officials. Yeah, you heard me correctly. The president wants to stop the post office from delivering mail-in ballots so that they can be counted in the midst of a raging pandemic. But that's still not the biggest worry any of us should have. Nope, not by a long shot. If the polls and the first national battleground map are correct, and Biden is going to win the November election, well, you know what, folks? Donald Trump will still be president of the United States until noon on January 20th, 2021. And a lot can happen over the 80 days from the time that the election polls close and Biden would be sworn in as the victor, as the 46th president of the United States. Just think about that for a second. There's 80 days in which Donald Trump remains the president. So let's think about what could happen. Just a few of the what ifs. You know, I'm very big on what ifs because the best plan always hits reality. And you better think about what if. Let's start with the margin of victory. If the election's close, Trump will certainly sue. And like in 2000, the winner will not be declared for a month or more. But it's going to be worse. It's not about hanging chads anymore. It's going to be about every signature flourish 
on a mail-in ballot compared to the signature card on file. I mean, if you don't dot your I's in exactly the same way as you did 40 years ago, the Trump people are gonna challenge about your ballot. Every postmark's gonna be questioned. And what about those states and counties like California where they provide convenient locked boxes at libraries and city halls and so forth where you can go and drop your ballot in, which is what I usually do, or they have collection sites the weekend before the election where you can just drive through and open your window and hand your ballot to someone um, and in the locked box it goes off to be counted. Well, in a close election, Trump is certainly going to challenge every one of those ballots. Claims of fraud will echo across the land and millions will be spent on lawyers on both sides. It could be a month. It could require the Supreme Court. It could require more than one trip to the Supreme Court in order to settle the actual election if the margin of victory is for Biden is narrow. If the margin of victory is so significant that the results cannot be contested, the Trump administration cannot be counted on to participate in an orderly transfer of power. Take COVID-19, for example. Experts now believe that COVID-related deaths in the United States will exceed 200,000 individuals by election day. That should provide some motivation to grieving family members. Then add in a predicted moderate flu season with waves of infection from the flu also rolling across the nation. Will the outgoing administration be willing to do what is required to stem the virus if they believe that the benefits of stemming that virus will accrue to the new Biden administration? If history is our teacher, you're shaking your head, no. No, I don't think that the Trump administration would be willing to work to stem the tide of a virus if they thought the new Biden administration would get credit for it. And what if Trump is reelected? Will he suddenly emerge in the COVID crisis, engaged, interested, empathetic, entrepreneurial, or will he just keep on saying, oh, it's going to go away? Politics is not beanball, but it's also got, you. there have to be moral limits in a uh, democratic society. So the question has to be asked. When we had the complete viral genome in hand in early February, why is the nation, the one nation in the world that split the atom, sent a man to the moon and back, heck, flew the first manned aircraft at Kitty Hawk, developed the semiconductor, developed radar, developed the iPhone, developed laptop computers. How come that society cannot develop a rapid, accurate, readily available COVID-19 test in six months? There is only one reason that more than 160,000 have died and 5 million are infected. And that answer is politics.
Sadly, the United States of America's government lacks the national will to do what is necessary to test, tra track, trace, and isolate individuals in order to stop this raging wildfire of illness. And why? Out of a misguided sense that testing, unknowing how many people really are infected, is bad news politically for Republicans' reelection chances. Let that one sink in. And with that as a backdrop, it is irrational to expect a lame duck President Trump to be more aggressive about making testing widely available during his remaining days in office. And the biggest irony is here, here in terms of making testing widely available, the president has the power delegated to him by Congress in the Defense Production Act, and he refuses to use it to help the American people. Further, what if there is a vaccine that the FDA believes is proven to be at least 50% effective, which is their threshold? What if that vaccine could be available by the first week in January, which is the most optimistic time frame, according to the experts. Well, if that optimism were borne out, would an administration hostile to federal leadership before the election take the lead in determining when, where, how, and to whom the vaccine should be administered as people are becoming infected every single day, so every day matters? Would they be engaged and open to doing this, especially if the credit for a successful vaccine rollout would go to the new Biden administration? I don't think so. Could be surprised, but I don't think so. Doesn't strike me that Donald J. Trump would be a good loser. And then we come to the summer of our discontent, the rising racial tensions in this country that were awakened by George Floyd's murder. And that murder awakened the country, the entire country, to an, the ongoing issue of racial injustice. It was an awakening not seen since John Lewis's bloody head was broadcast across the country during the 1965 march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And that bloody head that march, those people, their dignity, that was the, the moment at which it became inevitable that Congress would respond by passing the first Civil Rights Act of the 20th century, and that President Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Dixiecrat, would sign that Civil Rights Act. It takes a shock to the nation's system. And we've had a similar one this year. And what's the president's reaction? Is it to make it more certain that every person who wants to cast a ballot can? Is it that he seeks to heal the nation's wounds? No, the president has done all he can to stir the passions of red Southern states almost in a throwback to the dark, dying days of Jim Crow. 
more George Wallace than either of the George Bushes. He's used the Attorney General as his conduit to anarchists on both the right and the left. The objective was to stir up violence, increase racial tensions, so that federal troops could be deployed more as a cause to create violence, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, than to respond to it. And perhaps that was all done with the intent to prepare to promote further civil unrest and then to use that unrest as a pretense to impose some sort of martial law as a last effort to cling to power. Now, you might think that's hyperbole, but the fact is that there has been formed a volunteer national task force on election crisis. And among the very well-known Republicans and Democrats who have gotten together and, and what if all the scenarios in detail and what needs to happen should one of them come to pass, included in among those people are Colin, Colin Powell's former chief of staff, you know, a ranking military officer, and former Homeland Security Secretary in the Bush second George W. Bush's second administration, Michael Chertoff. Now, Chertoff is definitely not a man known to hyperbole. But these men of stature and experience, wisdom and age, have gotten together to prepare a response should there be an attempt by a losing Donald J. Trump to cling to power. It's that serious. And amid all of this, we have economic chaos. At the beginning of the year, economists were kind of worried that we, that the economy might be hitting a speed bump, you know, a, a slowdown, which would not actually have been a bad thing. But the need to partially shut down the economy in March of this year pushed that economy over a very steep cliff. And the failure, the failure to adequately compensate for that shock to the economic system by both the president and the Congress. Well, the result is we moved from 3% unemployment in January to somewhere between 10.2 and 11.2% unemployment this past week. There are 20 million or more unemployed. We've already lost 100,000 small businesses that um, won't be coming back, and along with them, there are millions of jobs. It may take a decade to replace those. There's been a 33% dip in GDP in the first half of this year. And that will, there is no V-shaped recovery. It'll be a very wide U. It could even be a W in terms of the shape of that recovery, because this is the most consequential drop in GDP since the Great Depression. So 
what if the federal courts were to uphold president the president's executive memorandum of yesterday which suggests that there should be a moratorium on evictions from government financed housing fha bank foreclosures and collections on student loans the memorandum is instead of working with congress to fund adequate emergency aid to individuals and local governments so that money keeps circulating so they can meet these financial obligations. If you have a moratorium and landlords can't pay their, because they're not getting any money from their tenants, they can't pay their mortgages, or if individuals are unemployed and cannot pay their mortgages, who is going to provide the banks with capital to make new loans? No one. Because landlords who receive no rent can't repay their mortgages. I don't know how they manage their ongoing expenses, like some portion of the utilities, uh, groundskeepers, whatever. Because the unemployed workers certainly are not going to be providing capital to the banks. So without new capital, without money circulating, there will be a further contraction of small community banks and their customers. And who are their customers? Yeah, their customers are small businesses. And small businesses are 80% of American jobs. And those small businesses, because the banks are contracting, will have reduced access to working capital. We've seen it already in the PPP program. Without new capital, there will be a further contraction of small community banks. There will be a further reduction of working capital. There will be a, a shaking out, um, as we've not seen since 2008, of these small community banks. And a vengeful one-term president will just leave the fiscal mess that comes with collapsing banks to his successor. Even more frightening, what would a triumphant Trump do? Would he declare mortgage foreclosures illegal, leaving a trail of failed banks in his wake? Or would he allow the moratorium to expire? Because after all, post-election, he doesn't need those voters anymore. And then there's the biggest what if of them all. If Donald J. Trump wins re-election, will there even be a need for a Congress? Or will the country be agreeing to a term of more executive orders? And would those executive orders, would that term of executive orders actually expire in 2024? And what about the judiciary? How long can Chief Justice Roberts' Supreme Court survive the wrath of a reelected Donald Trump? I wake up every morning hoping for one smoke signal of hope to avoid the chaos that most certainly lies straight ahead. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. 
join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.